We're going to be reading from uh, Romans 8, 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. Now, you all know that we live in a very congested city, and we should probably be getting used to that, but uh, I don't think anyone really enjoys being confronted by scenes like these uh, when you go somewhere and uh, that's what you have to join the back of. Uh, You groan inwardly, don't you? Or perhaps outwardly. Uh, or when you jump in the car and run into Sydney's favourite hobby, uh, waiting in traffic. Uh, Nobody enjoys that experience. Um, There's a a new pastime for the 21st century as well, being on hold. Uh, Qantas was in the news recently, weren't they, when people started reporting that they'd been put on hold for up to six hours waiting to speak to someone about their changed flights. Um, And eventually, if they did happen to get through and get their flights sorted, when they went to Sydney Airport, they ran into that. Now, governments are aware of this frustration. In fact, they're willing to spend billions of dollars on new roads to save us, well, a few precious minutes on the road. And many of us are willing to pay for the privilege, aren't we? Every time I punch in my parents' address in Campbelltown on Google Maps, and it shows me my options, there's that one that's going to save me 10 minutes, but I know it's going to cost me 10 bucks in tolls. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. Because we all hate waiting, don't we? Time is precious. Which is why a few things get me as riled up as people who think that their time is more precious than mine. Those people who push in front in the queue at the shops. The people who push ahead in traffic. Uh, That's a real road rage trigger for me, I'm ashamed to confess. I don't like to wait, and those people are making me wait longer than I have to. We all hate waiting. But the Bible tells us that, in fact, part of the Christian life is just that, learning to wait. Um, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, and he tells them uh, that this has been the experience of their conversion that's been reported to him. And he says, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So you've realised that your life is heading in the wrong direction. You know that things weren't right between you and God. Somehow someone shared the good news about Jesus with you. You put your trust in him. You knew that your sins were forgiven. You had the promise and hope of eternal life. You were saved. 
And then what? You wait. Doesn't sound particularly exciting, does it? But the kind of waiting that we're supposed to do is not the kind of stand in the queue at the bank sort of thing. It's very different to that. I think the kind of waiting that's on view here that uh, Paul's talking about when he writes to the Thessalonians is more like the kind of waiting that an elite athlete does. I'm sure you've heard professional sports people being interviewed um, after winning a a major sporting event of some kind, uh, and they'll often say something along the lines of, well, it was a long time coming, I've waited a long time for this moment. And of course, when they talk about waiting in that way, uh, it doesn't mean that they were sitting at home watching the telly on the couch. No, they were at it, weren't they? They were out on the tennis court or in the gym or in the pool, on the track, training, perfecting their craft, working hard. See, for those athletes, their waiting isn't about doing nothing. It's not an idleness. Those athletes have their eyes on a prize. And so they put a a lifetime of training and discipline to preparing themselves for those moments. Their waiting is full of purpose and full of endeavour. And I think that's the kind of waiting that we are to have as God's people. Now, I don't think we've got any aspiring Olympians among us this morning. Correct me if I'm wrong. So what exactly are we waiting for? Well, that verse in Thessalonians tells us, doesn't it? It's pretty simple, that we are to wait for his son from heaven. We are waiting for Jesus to come back, aren't we? That's what God's people are waiting for. Now, that may come as no surprise to you. I suspect it doesn't. Um, But I wonder if you are, in fact, waiting for that. I think there's a big difference between knowing that that's going to happen and, in fact, waiting for it. Well, let me put it this way. Does the fact that Jesus is coming back affect your life in any significant way? Does it affect your priorities? The decisions that you make about what you do in your life and with your life? The way you plan? The choices that you make? If you're actually waiting for Jesus to come back, it should do all of those things. Uh, But before we talk a little bit more about what waiting for Jesus should look like, um, I want to expand a little bit on this idea of what exactly we're waiting for, to think a bit about that new creation that God has promised us. Because understanding what God has in store for us will help shape how we live now. As we get a clearer picture of where we're headed when Jesus returns, uh, that will motivate us and help us as we wait for that to happen. Uh, So I want to focus on a couple of aspects of this new creation that God has promised us. Uh, The first is the idea of going home, uh, and the other is that we're waiting to be made whole. Uh, So firstly, the idea of going home. These are the famous words of Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. When we come to trust in Jesus, we come to belong to a new family. 
God's family. And in a way, this world is not really our home anymore. We know that our true home lies with God. In a sense, we're waiting for Jesus to take us home to that place, that home that we've been promised. There are all kinds of images that get used in the Bible to describe what that home will be like. Um, Some of them are, well, very rarely like what we see portrayed in the media or in films. The Bible talks of a great feast, uh, a house, a home, a garden, and a new city, to name a few. Uh, And it's that image of a city that gets picked up right at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Uh, And speaking about this city, John writes this way. He says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 3 there describes one of the wonderful realities of this new creation, that, that the curse which has hung over creation ever since the Garden of Eden is gone. It won't be a part of this new reality. This is a new creation where there will be no more crying or sickness or pain or death. And I think, well, there's a lot of high points in those chapters of Revelation, but I think the high point of, all, high point of it all is tucked away there in verse 4 where it says that we will see God's face. It's a wonderful picture of God's people in his very presence, uh, that there's a, an intimacy to our relationship with God there that we can, in some ways, only hope for now and look forward to now. And that is what awaits us. That is what we can look forward to. There's a, uh, being a good Presbyterian, I regularly read the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's not actually true. But there's a wonderful line, the very first uh, question that's asked in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And I think it's spot on with its answer. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When Christ returns, our greatest joy will simply be to delight in God himself, to know and see him and be in his presence forever. That is worth waiting for. That is our home. Now, that's not all we're waiting for, of course, because the return of Jesus also means that each one of us will be made whole and made new too. Uh, So that passage we had read for us earlier in Romans 8 talks about this. It says, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies. See, what God has promised us is the restoration of our whole selves, including our bodies. And so while we can say without a doubt that in Christ we've been saved, we also understand that there are some things that are still missing, that there is more to come. And one of those things has to do with our bodies. See, when Jesus comes again, he promises that we will be raised that our bodies will be made new. Uh, Romans describes it there. Philippians has a verse about it as well, talking about 
uh, God and Jesus returning says, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So yes, we've been saved completely in Christ, but we're not yet complete. We're still waiting for this time when our bodies will be remade, resurrected, made fit for eternity. And so we wait. Because in this life, our bodies will not always cooperate with us, will they? In one sense, they are a good thing because they're a part of God's good creation. And as Mike was talking about before, we live in a good world with many good things to enjoy. But we also recognise that that creation has been tainted, tainted by sin. And so these bodies of ours are headed for death. They are slowly breaking down. They're not eternal and they'll all fail us in the end. And more than that, our bodies, we know, are corrupted by our own sinful natures. It's true that in Christ we're no longer slaves to sin, but sin will always be an unwelcome companion for us. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus is so important, because his victory over death brings with it both uh, the promise of the new creation, but within that is the promise of new bodies for us too, bodies that are free from the curse of sin, and fit for eternity. I think that's one of the reasons why Christians are not ascetics. You know, we don't encourage people to live on a diet of bread and water, to disdain pleasure. We don't deprive our bodies as though they're somehow a kind of a corruption that needs to be beaten into submission. Although some people have made those sorts of mistakes in the past. Now, we recognise that our bodies, the physical world that God has made, are all a part of his good plan and given to us by God to experience and to enjoy. And somehow that reality is going to be redeemed as a part of the new creation. And so we should be people who give thanks to God for the way he's made us, for the senses that he's given us. It's okay to thank God when you're tucking into a good Thai stir-fry or a tender piece of eye fillet or tofu, if that you go. I don't think it's an accident that one of the images used to describe the new creation is that of a feast, a banquet. When Jesus comes back, our bodies will be raised and changed and made fit for eternity. That's what God created us to be. And so we, we long for that day. We're waiting for that day when Jesus returns, when he'll make everything right and make everything new. But not yet. And so what should our waiting look like? Well, I've got two words for you. It should be patient and it should be productive. So back to Romans 8. It says, We wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what they already have? But if we hope for we do, what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. God calls on us to wait patiently. Now, I think we all struggle with patience, some of us more than others perhaps, 
There are plenty of people who have become impatient with God about this waiting business too. I think when people become impatient with what God has promised, one of the things we can do when we get impatient about it is to try and bring what God has promised for the future into the reality of now. That is, some people have attempted to try and create a, a perfect church or a perfect society that is free of sin, a kind of utopia here on earth. Uh, those experiments have, in every instance, been a dramatic failure because there are always sinful people who are a part of them. But at a more personal level, I think we can all grow impatient, can't we, with God's timing? What does it look like for you to grow impatient with God? Maybe it looks like storing up treasures here on earth because you simply can't wait for the treasures that God has promised you in the world to come. Maybe you feel like you really need to make a name for yourself here and now because it's not enough to know that God knows your name and will one day call you home. We can only wait patiently if we trust God's word, if we're willing to trust God with our lives and our futures. I'm not pretending that's an easy thing to do. As as Mike reminded us this morning, until Jesus returns, this world isn't going to be perfect. We're warned repeatedly in the pages of the Bible that we can expect hardship, trouble, poverty, war, injustice. These are realities in our world. That doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to minimise them, to alleviate suffering where we can, not at all. But we also need to recognise that in this world, those things will be present with us until Jesus comes back. And that's why it says here that we are to be people who live in hope and that our hope of what is coming can help us to persevere now. Our hope can help us to endure the hardships and the sufferings of this life because we know that in the eternal scheme of things, they are only temporary. We know that there is something great to come. And we know that what awaits us is far better than anything we'll have to endure in this life. As hard as that is to accept at times. This is a picture of Florence Chadwick. She was the first woman to ever swim the English Channel in both directions. Uh, and in 1952, Florence was the first woman to attempt to swim uh, the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the California coastline. 15 hours into her attempt, a thick fog set in off the coast. Florence began to flounder. She began to doubt that she'd be able to make it. She swam on for another hour before being uh, pulled out, asked to be pulled out, exhausted. She couldn't see where she was going, couldn't see the coastline. As she sat in the boat, the fog started to clear. She was only one mile from the coast, one mile from her destination. She said afterwards that if she'd been able to see the shoreline, she knows she would have been able to keep going. Hope of what lies ahead of us enables us to persevere, helps us to endure. 
Speaking of the return of Jesus, Peter writes this. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. As we think about what is coming, as we wait for Jesus to return, we should not only wait patiently, we should also wait productively. We should be people who live for God, who use the the years that God has given us in this life in a way that honours God, that grows his kingdom, in a way that's appropriate for people who've been saved by his love and his grace. That's what it means to wait productively, to wait busily, like an athlete waiting for those Olympic Games. We don't sit around munching on Tim Tams. Our waiting is to be purposeful, busy. This is the commission Jesus gave his disciples as he left them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus has left us work to do. He is building his kingdom, calling people into relationship with himself and calling us to be a part of that work, work that will last, work that will matter when Jesus comes back. When Jesus returns, how will he find you? Busy for him? Or busy with the things of this world? I mean, if he was to return this week, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I haven't got a chart for you that shows you how all the dates add up and May 22nd. Uh, But if Jesus was to return this week, how would he find you? Committed to building his kingdom? Or maybe busy and preoccupied building your own? Let's be people who fix our eyes on what God has promised us, where we are headed, to live with that eye on eternity. Yes, you've been saved. But for what? Forgiveness and eternal life are yours. But there's more to come. You are a new creation in Christ. But the new creation is still to come. You are a child of God, but you've not yet been called home. And so as you wait, wait patiently, wait with that sure and certain hope of what is coming, and be busy with God's work in the meantime.